This is the Weekly You Demon. I encourage you to listen. It's good stuff. Sometimes he's even sober during the show. Celebration time. Episode 60. Its significance? Well, it's uh, divisible by 10, I guess. <laughs> Hey, in this bale of tears, you got to find your significance wherever you can. <laughs> it reminds me, years ago, there was a shooting or some other kind of tragedy here in Michigan. And kids at a public university held a candlelight vigil. And on my blog, I was all, all kind of a dick about it. <laughs> I forget my exact words, but I think I said something like, the vigil is a quasi-religious practice, stripped of all metaphysical meaning that still connects at the young and unconscious level. But these benighted and secularized college kids are too ignorant of their own souls to realize it. Or I call them dumbasses, I <laughs> I forget. <laughs> but regardless, the picture of the vigil is taken at a college campus about two hours from my house, and it turns out the picture featured a dear friend's niece. My friend lives six hours from my house, but I'd like to read my blog. <laughs> <It's> so... <laughs> what are the freaking chances of that happening? <laughs> anyway, I made up my mind right there and then. I said, I'll no longer write anything on my blog or otherwise that isn't laced and informed by charity. Unless I'm dealing with dumbasses. <laughs> so, I'm working my way through Lawrence Cahoon's 700-page anthology of postmodernism. I'm nearly 100 pages through it. Only 36 five-hour energies to go! He starts the book out by excerpting key passages from writers who help frame the modern mind, whose main gist is, as I read Cahoon and write other people about postmodernism, that just the modern mind is, modernity was obsessed with reasoning. Rationality, or what Russell Kirk would call defecated rationality. <laughs> That's a great term, defecated rationality. Which... I think means in Kirk's Kirk's world, it means rationality from first premises that may not even be proper first premises. <laughs> so you, you say, well, we got this, and then we, we reason from that. It's like, wait a second, those aren't even a proper first principle. It gets confusing because Aquinas does the same thing. Ludwig von Mises, who I love, and Murray Rothbard, they do the same thing. But they take like very, very small baby steps, whereas the the person of defecated rationality would say something like, freedom, liberty is good, and then they're off and running with that. And it's like, wait, 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 back up a second, back up a second. You gotta go much smaller baby steps. But anyway, the modern mind is obsessed with that rationality. It is obsessed with empiricism, that faith that science would bring us to a promised land what C.S. Lewis and others have called scientism. And so these, I guess I'd call them these pre-postmodernist writers that Cahoon has mentioned at the beginning pages are those who are the building blocks of modernity, like Immanuel Kant and Rene Descartes. And I discovered last week Condorcet. Yes, Condorcet. <laughs> I've always liked the Marquis de Condorcet. This moron <laughs> was a pioneer of modernity, 
And he is, in my opinion, the poster boy of the ridiculousness of secular progressivism. Through his faith and reason, he wrote, quote, Nature has set no term to the perfection of the human faculties, unquote. Quote, the perfectibility of man is truly indefinite, unquote. <laughs> he was also one of the earliest examples of the saying, revolutions eat their own. He was a big fan of the French Revolution when it broke out. But then it turned ugly. He was arrested and put in prison, where he died nine months later, presumably by suicide. He apparently didn't even have an island with girl prostitutes on it. <laughs> He's also, significantly, one of the main, quote, unconstrained visionaries, unquote, referenced in Thomas Sowell's excellent little book, A Conflict of Visions. If you don't have this little book by Sowell, which... I'm not even sure it's that little. It's 232 pages long. By soul standards, though, that that's a little book. <laughs> if you don't have it, you ought to seriously consider getting it. I mean, gosh, Miss Soul, man, that, that dude can write. He can write like I speak. Very goodly. <laughs> no, no, but not seriously. Soul is the man. And that's a great little book to get a feel for. I don't say these type of issues. I mean, his whole paradigm here, this constrained versus unconstrained, was, was brand new. Because in the Conflict of Visions, he examines two diametrically opposed world visions, the unconstrained and the constrained. The unconstrained vision looks at the world as infinitely improvable. Things can always be made better. The constrained vision, on the other hand, looks at the world as one of limitation. Whether due to original sin, or simple human frailty, or maybe just pessimism, whatever it could be, the constrained vision says, we do the best we can, we try to progress the best we can, but we aren't so great, so tread carefully. And Sowell says, you know, much of past couple hundred years, ideological battles, he, he, his whole gist is, if you look at every political battle, whether it's the Trump impeachment or whatever it is, it's like always breaking down between these two ideological camps, the constrained versus the unconstrained visions. Now, I would also point out, though, I think to say that the unconstrained is liberal and the constrained is conservative would be too simplistic. Sowell was, is very, very aware of those two terms, liberal and conservative. And he didn't use them for a reason. One, it's totally inadequate in today's political climate. It was totally inadequate in the political climate in the 1980s when Sowell wrote the book. I think that's when he wrote the book. It's one of his earlier works. I think it was 1980s. That's when I first listened to it anyway. But if you want an, ex an example of why Sowell's constrained versus unconstrained is better than this liberal conservative, take, take for example, William Godwin. Godwin is Sowell's poster boy of the unconstrained vision. He actually says that. I don't think he used the term poster boy, but he says William Godwin is... Exhibit A of the Unconstrained Vision. Godwin, by the way, he married Mary Wollstonecraft, who was like an early feminist, and they had a daughter named Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley wrote the book Frankenstein. Just a little aside there. So you walk away from this podcast always with more information than you had coming in. <laughs> but anyway, in Sowell's book, Godwin, with good reason, is like the exemplar of the Unconstrained Vision. But Godwin was also an anarchist. I mean, he is a hero among many libertarians today. 
even though his anarchism was of a the left wing variety, the uh, the libertine sexual freedom type variety. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Godwin believed that if all social controls as reinforced by government were eliminated, mankind would become perfect. That's why he's in soul's unconstrained category, I believe. But Godwin wasn't remotely a leftist by today's standards. Today's leftist wants to use government to confiscate wealth, build enormous social welfare programs, and enforce laws against hate speech. Godwin would have been against all that. Godwin was against all, quote, coercive government, unquote. He was kind of like a communist. He wanted all men to share their access with other men, and all men to be equal when it came to property and money. But he did not want government to do it. He did not want government taking it. You know, like the socialists taking it, living sumptuously, slicing off a chunk for their cronies on Wall Street, <laughs> then passing it out to the masses. That would have horrified Godwin. So again, I think the fact that Sowell puts Godwin in this unconstrained camp is significant to say it's not just a liberal conservative thing. Godwin, by all accounts, is an unconstrained visionary, but he would not be a conventional fit into the, into the term liberal today, or even for the past 30, 40, 50 years. And by the way, if you want if you want a great little podcast about William Godwin, check out Jeff Riggenbach's The Libertarian Tradition. This is just an excellent series in general on libertarian thinkers. The Godwin episode came out on April 28, 2010. And if you want to, if, if you don't want to listen to the podcast, Riggenbach also put out... I think he did, I think he did the podcast first, and then he made ebooks out of them. Maybe it was vice versa, but there's two volumes on the ebook, and they're three bucks a piece. You can get them off Amazon. That's oh, three bucks well spent if you're interested in the history of libertarian thought. But anyway, after after Godwin, I gotta believe Condorcet is the unconstrained example that Sowell cites the most. I mean, Condorcet, as evidenced by those quotes earlier, was like an unconstrained visionary to the max. <laughs> he presumably has second thoughts while he was rotting in prison waiting to die. But in his earlier writings, he was all in when it came to the perfectibility of man. And so here's a significant, why did Condorcet think that man had unlimited potential? Simple reason. According to Condorcet, mankind had left, quote, long periods of error, unquote, and is, quote, capable of reasoning, unquote. And it's that reasoning that would bring mankind to, per to perfection or infinite progress. And it's that faith-like trust and reason that postmodernism attacks. Postmodernism asks, how do you really know what you think you know? <laughs> Following De Saussure and the Structuralists, who taught that all our thoughts are framed by our language, and therefore our thoughts aren't really our thoughts, but rather products of the structure we inhabit at this point in history or in this culture. They deconstructed language altogether, concluding that all is subjective, and because truth is only what we think it is, there is no objective truth. And if there is no objective truth, then there is nothing for reason to work with. So the whole enlightenment, faith, and reason, as seen in Condorcet, <laughs> it just freaking collapses. So science? That's bunk to the postmodernists. Scientists build with tools provided by our structure. If the structure changed, for instance, if they were undertaking experiments in a different time or culture, the results would be different, or at least interpreted differently. And I think about it, it's the interpretation is all that really matters. 
you may have a set of empirical facts, or <laughs> or not, <laughs> according to both structuralists. You may think these are empirical facts, but then we find out later they weren't, which is one of Thaddeus Russell's big points. He goes, every quote-unquote empirical fact we have, one year, ten years, fifty years later, we find out it wasn't an empirical fact at all, and it changes. But if they are empirical facts, you have to interpret them and apply them to the real world, and that's going to change depending on to the structuralist or the deconstructionist, it's going to change with your climate and your time in history. So they, the postmodernist puts no faith in science. Condorcet, unbounded faith in science. <laughs> Condorcet was one of the first people to say, hey, we could take science and all the success we've had with science since, since the time of Francis Bacon, and we can apply them to the humanities and create the social sciences. You know, bring empiricism to the study of history or psychology, or sociology, which is just an evil. <laughs> That's a different topic, different time. How about experts? This is one thing that Sowell writes a lot about in, in A Conflict of Visions. The unconstrained visionary has a lot of faith in experts. We have experts to tell us this, and they'll guide us here. I think anyone's listening to this podcast, or I think anyone who thinks <laughs> for himself realizes experts suck. Marsha McLuhan once described the expert's knowledge as a bright flashlight aimed directly at one's eyes. <laughs> See, the postmodernists say, yeah, they're experts within the structure in which they're thinking. So their thoughts, their expertise is limited or framed by the structure they're in. Or deconstructed structure, there is no truth for them to be an expert on to begin with. It depends where you are in this whole postmodernism type milieu. But Condorcet, Condorcet, this idiot, <laughs> he thought the truly enlightened philosophers are, quote, strangers to ambition, unquote, and therefore they should dictate and control pretty much everything. To Condorcet, it's like, well, if you're an enlightened philosopher, there's just no way that you would use all the wealth that you have access to because you have all the guns to benefit yourself and your cronies. Like we know happens big time here in America today. To counter say that'd be just, that could happen. We'll just have the best men on top and the best men will have no ambition. They want nothing for themselves and therefore they'll just bring in this utopia. Again, just, just a first rate idiot. Bottom line is I, I don't think it's much of an exaggeration to say that everything counter say stood for postmodernism derides. Now as a Catholic, that leaves us with a very odd situation. See, counter say also scorned the Catholic Church. Christianity in general, I believe, but definitely Catholic Church. Postmodernism scorns the Catholic Church. Or heck, I'm not even sure it's accurate. I'm not even sure they think about the Catholic Church. I mean, I think in the postmodern eyes, the Catholic Church is about as relevant as, say, Zoroastrianism or astrology. <laughs> Just, it's like, yeah, whatever. Don't even think about that. But regardless, postmodernism also scorns Condorcet's belief in reason. The Catholic Church scorns Condorcet's belief in reason, always teaching there's a place for reason, yes, but also acknowledging that ultimately creation is a riddle, a paradox, and it can't be solved because we are bound by reason, and therefore we need faith, grace, and the mystical. The Catholic Church has the constrained vision, big time, that's the bottom line. I mean, the Catholic Church big time believes in original sin, and has 2,000 years history of dealing with human frailty. <laughs> From its parishioners, to its priests, to its bishops, 
to popes. They they know human nature is frail. So you had the Catholic Church in the constrained camp. Is postmodernism also in the constrained vision camp? I think it is. And that's going to be, I think, controversial to a lot of people who look at postmoderns as like the Antifa types and the <laughs> communists and socialists. I don't think it's accurate. And I know Thaddeus Russell thinks the same way. He thinks that the postmodern is a quintessential constrained visionary. Now, Thaddeus Russell doesn't use those terms, but he thinks it is. So you have that situation where you have postmodernism and Catholicism on the surface really just dislike each other and are are antithetical. But they both dislike someone like Condorcet. They also are probably both in this constrained vision camp of Thomas Sowell. Then I go back to that sermon I listened to a couple years ago. Actually, no, nah, I, I think it was like a year and a half ago where this guest preacher came in and was talking about how through postmodernism the smoke of Satan has entered the Catholic Church. And I'm just going, boy, I don't, I don't think so. I... <laughs> I mean, clearly, the French intellectuals like Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, who are probably the two most seminal postmodernist thinkers, no friends of the Catholic Church, and that, that's an understatement. But increasingly, I think we're, we're seeing a potential intense ally in those thinkers and the postmodernism in general. We'll be flushing out further as this podcast moves forward. Okay, let's do some lighting segments. <laughs> My son came home from college the other day, and he's been helping out the Special Olympics. And he said, uh, they've been playing basketball, and because one of the Special Ed kids was, like, really dominating. I mean, he's like, boy, because that, that kid could possibly play on the varsity team. He's going behind the back. He's driving hard to the hoop. <laughs> the second session, the second day, he realized... The guy's not special ed. He's just a normal guy. <laughs> Out there dominating. <laughs> so, he goes, he goes, he goes, honestly, he goes, he goes, one of the guys on the court during these, these basketball games are playing in the Special Olympics is in a wheelchair. He goes, there's no way this guy doesn't realize this, but he's out there going hard just giving these special ed kids hell. <laughs> so I, my son started guarding him and giving him hell, but... <laughs> Yeah, I guess the uh, coordinators didn't want to kick the guy off. They said, well, I guess if he keeps coming, we'll have to say something eventually. <laughs> My son was outraged. He's eventually, get him out of here now. <laughs> okay, podcast episode of recommendation. Shocker, shocker. Econ Talk. It's kind of my go-to. And a lot of, well, I have a lot of go-to podcasts, but that's one of them. Check out the episode, The Lost Books of Jane Austen. It's really interesting. Now, it's not about books that Austin wrote but were never published. I think she only wrote like wrote and published like six books. But rather, this podcast talks about the advent of cheap editions in the 19th century that made Austin a household name. Back in the old days, like 200 years ago, mid-19th century, people without means, you know, maybe to call them the middle class or lower middle class or the poor, they couldn't binge read. <laughs> That's how they call it, Nikon Talk. I love that term. They couldn't binge read. They had to wait for novels and books to get published week by week or bi-weekly, whatever the frick it was. They'd get like one chapter and they'd be distributed them on the uh, 
on the, on the street corner, and the poor people would get that one chapter, and they'd read it, and then they'd have to wait for the next chapter to come out. Rich people could wait for the book to come out entirely, and they could just read it front to back. So you're getting on a train or something, and you got three hours to kill, well, then you brought a book with you, and you read it. Well, in the late 19th century, some entrepreneurs, God bless the entrepreneurs, God love them, they said, hey, we're going to produce these cheap paperback versions of Jane Austen books. Now, poor people could binge read as well, and then they did. They read a ton of them, and one of the main authors they published were Jane Austen, making her household name to this very day. The podcast is also interesting for a lot of other reasons. They talk about why Jane Austen speaks to us, you know, why it's such, you know, there's this, this college professor who wrote this book, you know, The Forgotten Books of Jane Austen. She said there's a waiting list for her classes. She's teaching a course on Jane Austen, packed every time. And not just literary, <laughs> literature majors, you know, engineering students, whatever, they want to take the Jane Austen courses. Definitely made me want to watch the movie Clueless. Never even heard of it, but I guess it came out at the same time as that movie, Ten Things I Hate About You, which which I really enjoyed. It's a, it's a chick flick, but I really enjoy it. I think this is it the second week in a row I've mentioned I like the chick flick. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Guess when I started doing this podcast, I got to check my gonads at the door. Uh, <laughs> but but things I hate about you was based on Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew. The movie Clueless, which came out about the same time, was based on Jane Austen's book Emma. And it's the exact same type thing. They took that story, that novel, put it in the 20th century in a modern setting and Clueless is based in a Los Angeles high school and I guess they're even more brazen about it that all the characters in the Clueless movie had the same names as they do in Jane Austen's Emma but for some reason the producers or the PR people of Clueless never told the public about the connection between Austen's Emma and the book Clueless unlike 10 Things I Hate About You they tied heavily into that William Shakespeare Taming of the Shrew anyway Russ Roberts recommended Clueless, so I was like, well, I trust Russ Roberts, so yeah, I'm going to watch that movie, put it on my list of chick flicks to watch with my daughters, and I'm pretty stoked. I, I keep, by the way, uh, on my Evernote, I keep a list of things I want to watch, because I hate sitting down, usually on a Saturday night, I'll just sit down after Mass on Saturday and watch something for two hours, like a movie or something, I hate looking for a movie, so I try to keep a list of things to watch. It's really worked out well, so if you have the same problem, and I've read that many people do, if you have a problem with trying to figure out what to watch, start keeping a list. Just type it in Evernote, and pull it up, and boom, run it, and you're good to go. Neat word I learned on that econ podcast, thruppence. It means three pennies. <laughs> and it was the price of a cheap edition of Jane Austen's books. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to give a product plug. This might be the first time, 60 episodes, I don't think I've done this. I'm going to plug a product, the best book stand. Got it for Christmas. It is freaking amazing. It can hold any size book. Maybe not a small paperback, but any size book. You put it on the stand, it holds it vertical. The arms are adjustable, the back's adjustable. I have now ordered a book light to put on top of the stand so I can read better so the light will shine down on the page 
but it, this thing is like 11 bucks. I'll post a link to it on the show notes page. Definitely, if you like to read and you like to have the book in front of you, uh, this this thing is definitely recommended. It's great. Because I've had book stands in the past and they flip over and they're flimsy and nothing ever seems to work. This thing is lights out. It's excellent. Strongly recommend the best book stand you get on Amazon. So I show up late to last Friday's weekday mass, just as they're finishing a short video presentation on the life of St. Francis de Sales. Our, our church kind of starts off some weekday masses with like a three-minute video. They're pretty pretty cool. But because mass starts at 8.30, I usually get there at 8.35, I miss them. And this is no exceptions. But I was really disappointed I missed this one. Because I simply don't know much about St. Francis de Sales, except that he wrote a spiritual classic called An Introduction to the Devout Life. And this thing has been a spiritual classic for hundreds of years, so at the prompting of many people, I started reading it. This was probably 15 years ago. <laughs> and it turned into my own little Seinfeld episode. You see, towards the beginning of the book, DeSales used the phrase, quote, weave a little nosegay. Nosegay. Nosegay this, nosegay that. Keep the nosegay with you at all times. I, <laughs> I didn't know what nosegay was. I just knew it sounded gay as hell. <laughs> it turns out the nosegay is the 17th century's version of axe. <laughs> the nosegay blocks out offensive orders like me axe my office. Much to the exasperation of other people in my office and... uh <laughs> Much of the county, if I get too aggressive with the spray. <laughs> I, I like accent. I guess it's to the normal adult. It's very sweet and kind of disgusting. <laughs> but if there's an offensive smell in my office, I'm known to axe it out. Again, much to the consternation of my co-workers. <laughs> anyway, the term nosegay. <laughs> it's such a fag term. I, I I couldn't get past it. It's like nosegay, nosegay. We have a little nosegay. It's like ah, fag me. <laughs> the reason me was saying, Eric, come on. This is a spiritual classic. Keep reading. Then Larry David and me said, nope. He said nosegay. I'm not reading anymore. <laughs> Reasonable me said, you're being a moron. It may not even be an accurate translation. And besides, it's a metaphor, surely. Figure it out. Figure out what he's talking about. The Larry David me? Yeah, it's a translation from the French. You're not helping your argument. <laughs> a French guy saying, weave a little nosegay? I'd rather read Mein Kampf. And on and on, I don't mind. And uh, I never finish it. I, <laughs> I couldn't get past weave a little nosegay. And it sat on my shelf now for 10, 15 years. Never went back to it. Although a publisher one time sent me a uh, an anthology of Francis de Sales quotes. That was really good. I read that and wrote some favorable things about it. And I have to find that book, maybe, maybe post a link to it. But anyway, I'd forgotten about an introduction to the devout life until I walked in the mass and I saw the tail end of that video about St. Francis de Sales. And it hit me. 
400 years before cognitive science explained the negativity bias, St. Francis de Sales was on it. Studies show us that negative thoughts are possibly three times stronger than positive thoughts. It's a fact that we pay attention to negative thoughts because they're mentally easier to attend to. We naturally slide into negative thoughts. And you're the only one that can stop the negative thoughts. You have to weave a little nosegay. <laughs> you have to spray axe up your nose. You have to keep the odors of bad thoughts out. How many thoughts do we have in a day? I, I don't know, 50, 10,000? I have no clue. But I want to bet that for the untrained and undisciplined mind, the vast majority of those thoughts are negative. And let's admit it, the vast majority of those are going to be hypotheticals, imaginations, mental concoctions, things that aren't real. It's like, they're the what-ifs. That's like my specialty, by the way. <laughs> what if this? What if that? You know, it's the, he doesn't like me, or why didn't he call, or why didn't this happen, etc., etc., negative, etc. Those are the thoughts that accost the untrained, undisciplined mind. Now, of those unreal negatives, let's face it, the vast majority never come true and there's no reason to think about them or worry about them. The guy didn't call you because he was at his dying grandmother's bedside. It's not because he doesn't like you. It's not because he made him mad. There's almost always a rational explanation that's nothing to do with you. And, of course, there are some thoughts, very few, I would suggest, that are real. Correct. Uh, the guy, he really does not like you. And why doesn't he like you? Well, because he's an asshole. Or he's an, unre he's an unreasonable drunk. <laughs> There's nothing you can do about it. So, the vast majority of the negative thoughts are not real. The very small minority that are real, you know, they actually do reflect some underlying disagreeable substance in your life. For those, there's nothing you can do about it. Hey, the guy's an, un an unreasonable drunk. You can't reason with him. He's, you know, he doesn't like you, and there's nothing you can do about it. So why think about it any further? So let's say there's 200 negative thoughts in a day, and only 12 are real. They're actually legitimate negative thoughts. These things are not good in your life. I'd say maybe of those 12, only one of them can you actually do something about. So maybe a half or 1% of those negative thoughts merit your attention. And of those, you don't even know which <laughs> half of 1%, you don't even know which one it is that merits attention. It's like plucking a negative straw out of a, the proverbial haystack of shit. <laughs> I recommend you all say no thanks to that and not pursue it. By the way, that uh, half of 1%, that's not um, a mathematically rigorous figure. <laughs> but, but it is my honest, good faith estimate of how many negative thoughts you have meet all those criteria, they reflect an actual substance in your life. You know, they, they, they reflect an actual fact or unpleasant circumstance in your life and something you could do something about and you can identify it. My, my younger mind, I, I thought it was a, a sign of mental toughness to grapple with those negative thoughts. If you share that inclination, just stop it. Just simply stop it. <laughs> I might even say, weave a little nosegay. Keep pleasant thoughts in front of you to block out the negative thoughts.
that's a wrap for episode 60. Hey, if you get a chance, go like the Facebook page. Nah, if you're like me, you don't really like doing that. I get it, it's no offense taken if you don't. Also follow the Weekly Demon on Twitter. 2020 resolutions to get the Twitter feed more active, and I just haven't been able to get to it. Some of the Twitter platform, I, I, I enjoy it, but not enough to engage it, so uh, I'm still working on that. Go check out udbenpodcast.com. You'll find detailed show notes. That was another New Year's resolution for the show, and I have been doing that. I'm pretty happy with the results so far. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.